hey man, you just need to let go and let God. What you really need is the second blessing. You need to speak in tongues. Why are you struggling with sin? I've gotten to the point where I am spiritually sin-free. You just need to receive the anointing, brother. You need to experience the higher life, the victorious Christian life. You just need to go practice Lectio Divina. Maybe try some centering prayer. Go read Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline. What are we to think of these suggestions from well-meaning Christians in the battle against sin? Welcome to Understanding Christianity. I am your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I serve as an adjunct professor of Old and New Testament theology and church history at Colorado Christian University. And I'm so glad that you've chosen to listen to the podcast today. On today's podcast, we're going to tackle this very important issue. How do you fight sin? How do you deal with sin? Or in other words, what the theological term is sanctification. How do we deal with growing in the Christian faith? You know, there are five major streams of sanctification teaching that have been predominant within the evangelical church over the past hundreds of years. And so I want to briefly do an overview of of some of the views, and then I want to camp out on the view that I think is the biblical view. So the first view is the Wesleyan view. This comes, obviously, from John and Charles Wesley. It's early Methodism. Um, It's the, the, the tradition that teaches that there's a second blessing or a second gift of grace which results in entire sanctification. And what this means is that hypothetically a Christian can attain a state of sinless perfection where his or her heart is totally devoted and consecrated to God where you live a life of complete holiness. This is sometimes seen in the Nazarene church, the Wesleyan tradition. It's this whole idea of complete sanctification that comes through a second gift of grace. But here's the problem with this view. It minimizes and misunderstands sin. You see, what they've done is they've downplayed sin to be outward behavior that could be very easily to attain sinless perfection. I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't gamble, I don't go to movies. And if you define sin as outward action then sure, for a a season, a person can go and do outward actions and and quote-unquote be sin-free. But sin is more than just outward action. Sin, you can sin in your attitude, you can sin in your heart, you can have lust deep in your heart. And so they've downplayed the full gamut of what the Bible teaches about sin. And it can also tend to be legalistic and very guilt-ridden, where people have a very hard burden to bear in thinking that they can actually reach a a state of sinless perfection. The Pentecostal is the second view 
a second stream of sanctification. It's somewhat similar to the Wesleyan view. It, I think it was birthed out of the Wesleyan view. And it also believes in a second work of grace or a second blessing. But the evidence, the manifestation of this second blessing is speaking in tongues. Now, the Wesleyan view would not hold to speaking in tongues as evidence of the second blessing, but the Pentecostal or the charismatic stream would say, yes, you have gone to this elevated plane of spiritual growth when you've received that second blessing and been evidenced by speaking in tongues. Now, obviously, there are more extreme versions of this that you see on TBN and Daystar and, and within the whole word faith movement that have the anointing, a holy laughter, uh, being slain in the spirit and things like that. And often what this does is it creates division and pride in this two-stage idea of sanctification um, the scripture does not teach that every single person will speak in tongues. And how you define tongues, I would encourage you to go uh, listen to a previous podcast on what are we to think of, the, of speaking in tongues and the charismatic movement where I unpack that biblically. And so the first stream is the Wesleyan or the Nazarene complete holiness, entire sanctification, sinless perfection stream. And then there's the Pentecostal second blessing speaking in tongues stream. The third one is one that you probably are familiar with, but you didn't know the name of it. Um, I call it the Keswick. The Keswick. In the late 1800s and early 90s, there was an an annual conference in Keswick, England. And this group heavily focuses on Romans 6 and through chapter 8. And it's often been known as the higher life, the victorious life, the let go and let God. The let go and let God. And so I want to unpack the Keswick movement because I think it's one that is not heretical. It's not aberrant. There are many within the Reformed Christian world that hold to this, especially within dispensational Reformed theology. But I want to unpack it because I think that it, it, is, it, it is concerning to me. Um, let me just lay forth a passage of Scripture. In Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, as you've, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, we're going to get to verse 13 here in a moment, but we have the passage of Scripture here that commands us to work out our salvation. Not work for it, so Paul is talking about the process of sanctification. Now, some of you have maybe read Men's um, Health magazine. It comes out every year with a list of most active cities in America. And obviously, I live here in Colorado. I grew up in Colorado Springs. My wife grew up in Denver. And usually Denver, Colorado Springs, Boulder, Fort Collins show up on the list as the most active, healthy, fit places to live. And I see this all around me. Uh, there's cyclists and runners and kayakers and hikers and mountain climbers. And, and so we are in a very active state here in Colorado. But in contrast to that, Lexington, Kentucky had the honor of being America's most sedentary city. 
This was back in 2011. But usually towns in the south or the deep south show up on this list. And the description was based upon how many hours a week the average person either watched cable TV, satellite TV, and how many video games were purchased in a year. You also think about the sloth, the animal. It's the slowest and laziest animal on the planet. Um, it actually shares the name of one of the seven deadly sins. Uh, these creatures live in the rainforest of Central and South America. Very slow metabolic rate. Sometimes it can take up to two months for them to digest their food. Um, on the ground, the maximum speed is 6.0 feet per minute. And so the sloth represents the epitome of passivity and activity. Maybe you are from uh, Lexington, Kentucky, and you are part of the most sedentary uh, city in America. And so we, we as a culture are very attuned to physical activity. And we know what happens when we become inactive as humans, uh, the potential health dangers. Uh, but, but think about in the Christian life, how does spiritual inactivity or passivity affect Christians in their pursuit of holiness? And how does it relate to this battle, this fight we have with sin? Which brings up a huge question that, that maybe a lot of you are asking, and, and there's different answers to it, and it's, it's really the fundamental question. Should Christians ever struggle with sin? Should you ever struggle? Should it be a fight? Should it be a battle? Or... Should instead you experience this complete victory over sin, move into this higher plane of spirituality, often called the victorious Christian life? Is all striving, is all effort in this fight against sin, is, is that a work of the flesh? Is it counterproductive to spiritual transformation? Is instantaneous sanctification possible for those select few who've absolutely surrendered themselves in consecration to Christ by letting go and letting God? Those are some great questions that the Keswick movement attempts to answer. You see, I grew up in a Southern Baptist, Arminian-leaning, dispensational-leaning, Keswick-leaning church culture where rededicating one's life to Christ every year at youth camp was commonplace. I mean, I can't tell you how many times, especially we would go to, down to Glorietta in New Mexico, and I went to the Fuge camp, Centrifuge, uh, those camps in the 80s, and, and just different things, Disciple Now, all the, all the Southern Baptist type of camps that there are, and you had the, um, the, the evangelists give the, uh, the, uh, the, the invitation, and obviously there was an invitation for salvation, but it was big time on, you just got to rededicate your life. And I, and I, you know, of course, every year you rededicate your life. Every year you rededicate your life. And, and I was often told that you need to absolutely surrender your life to Jesus. You come forward to the altar and you make sure that you absolutely surrender your life to Christ. But then over time as a teenager and as a young college student, when I would battle with sin, when I would struggle with sin, and I'd rededicated my life for the thousandth time, hoping that maybe this time I would reach this state of being entirely sanctified. I wouldn't struggle with sin anymore. Once I absolutely surrendered, I would be just in this plane where I would live the victorious Christian life. And then I, I would go back to real life after camp and realize that I had sin in my heart and I would struggle and I would just 
wonder why. I would question my salvation. Sean, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with you? Why are you struggling with sin? You, you should be absolutely surrendered. You rededicated your life. You should never struggle with sin again. Why aren't you letting go and letting God? Maybe I didn't fully surrender my life that first time around. Maybe, maybe my, my struggle against sin is too much of me in the flesh trying to do it. And, and maybe I just need to rest and wait passively for God to zap me with instant holiness so I never struggle again. Could I ever achieve that state of absolute surrender? And those, those, those questions plagued me, especially in college, because I struggled with sin. I was, I was frustrated because the only technique I was given growing up was let go and let God. And I really didn't understand what it meant. And I thought that I had done that numerous times, kind of waiting for God to do this instantaneous act in my life. I was letting go. I was letting God, but I kept sinning. And then confusion led to despair and at times, sometimes led to bitterness. And I remember a song one time we would sing in college ministry, in my Baptist student union ministry. The song was, Is My Life an Absolute Surrender? Is My Life an Absolute Surrender? And it echoes the title of a book by Andrew Murray who was a chief proponent of this idea that a believer can achieve complete victory over all known sin in his life. All I knew at that time was that I would never attain this state of absolute surrender. I'd struggle with letting go and letting God. It led to frustration. It led to confusion. And then a few years later, early in my college years, I was introduced to a book by Jerry Bridges called The Pursuit of Holiness that really totally changed my life, if there's one book that was a paradigm shift in my life, it, obviously that was the, the book that, that changed my life in the area of sanctification. Now, there's other books that have changed my life in areas of the doctrines of grace and, and other theologies. But the pursuit of holiness really changed the way I viewed my struggle with sin. Listen to what Jerry Bridges writes. He says, God wants us to walk in obedience, not victory. Obedience is oriented toward God. Victory is oriented toward self. This is not to say that God doesn't want us to experience victory, but rather to emphasize that victory is the byproduct of obedience. That one statement revolutionized my entire way of thinking because what was my focus? My focus and what I've been taught all throughout my life was you need to have victory over sin. You need to have victory over sin. If you're not experiencing victory over sin, there's something wrong with you. Rededicate your life so that you can have victory over sin. Rededicate your life. Absolutely surrender your life so that you can have victory over all known sin. And what Bridges argues is that victory is not the issue. That's not what you're striving for. You're striving for obedience to God. Victory is the byproduct. Victory is the outcome. But victory is not what you're aiming for. Because victory is self-centered. Obedience is God-centered. And Jerry Bridges, early in college, introduced me to J.I. Packer, who in turn introduced me to John Owen, who plunged me into an entire new world of understanding Christian sanctification. And they gave the name to the teaching that I was so heavily influenced in my past, this Keswick sanctification. And I would, for a comprehensive treatment of Keswick theology, I would um, highly recommend Andrew Nacelli's work, 
Let Go and Let God, a survey and analysis of Keswick theology. It's an excellent resource that gives a footnote and quote after quote and just comprehensively deals with this movement. Again, the Keswick movement is also called the higher life, the victorious life. Keswick, England, the Lake District was the birthplace back in the 1870s. Numerous conferences promoting this type of holiness. Again, Again, some momentum in the early 20th century. Um, the Keswick Convention meets uh, every year for a week and, and focuses on these issues. And so th- they really teach this whole idea of surrendering absolutely to God, letting go and letting God, so that you can receive or you can experience complete victory. It often comes to a moment of crisis. And they would say, without this unconditional surrender... Without this crisis of faith, you as a believer will never experience the spirit-filled life of victory. And this message was clearly articulated in its first publication. Its first publication says this, In Christ there is provided for every believer victory, liberty, and rest. And this may be obtained not by a lifelong struggle after an impossible ideal, but by a surrender of the individual to God and the indwelling of Holy Spirit. This does not come about by lifelong struggle, but by surrender to the Holy Spirit. You see the difference there? Holiness, growth and godliness is not progressive. It's not a battle. It's not a struggle that you deal with your entire life. It's not a lifelong pilgrimage, but it's a crisis of surrender, which brings immediate victory. Now, like I said earlier, This Keswick view of sanctification has many godly men and women who advocate its teachings. I don't believe it's heretical. I don't believe it's outside the bounds of Reformed conservative evangelicalism. But I do object to it as an overall satisfactory answer to the issue of how do you struggle or how do you fight sin. So what I want to do is I want to look at some of the weaknesses of the Keswick view of sanctification. Here's weakness number one, second-class Christians. If you look deeply into the teaching, the proponents of the victorious Christian life movement argue that there are two types of Christians. They claim that there are those who have achieved this higher level of sanctification through surrender, through the filling of the Holy Spirit, And then there are those who are your average Joe, run-of-the-mill Christians who who just continue to still struggle in this quote-unquote subnormal spiritual existence. And see, in reality, what the Keswick view of sanctification does, it creates a two-tiered system of believers between the haves and the have-nots. It has created a fairly new terminology among evangelicals called the carnal Christian. Maybe you've heard that term before, the carnal Christian. And this is what a carnal Christian is, how they define it. A carnal Christian has trusted Christ as Savior, but they have not fully surrendered to Him as Lord, and therefore he or she's living on a lower level of spirituality, and they have not experienced the victorious Spirit-filled life. In addition to this, they often make a sharp distinction between what a disciple is and what a Christian is. Let me, let me just give you an example of that. And you may not even thought about this. I was taught in my younger years that there was a difference between a Christian and a disciple. 
In other words, a Christian was a person who had trusted Jesus Christ for salvation. They had been born again. They're simply just a Christian. But if you really want to be a sold-out Christian, if you really want to be serious, then you are a disciple. And so a disciple means that you are actually following Jesus more, with more abandon, with more surrender. And so you have the disciples up here on this higher plane, and then you have your just basic Christians down here on this lower plane. And the Bible does not know of any distinction between a disciple and a Christian. A Christian is a disciple, and a disciple is a Christian. They are the same thing. Now, there's different growths. There's different levels of growth, but there's not two different sets of, 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 of Christians. Now, let's talk about the carnal Christian theory because it's very popular, and maybe you, you believe it or you've heard it or, you, or, or you're, maybe you've never heard it. Let me just talk about the carnal Christian idea. It's, it's very popular, really, again, among Reformed dispensational theology. Also was very popularized by Bill Bright in some of the early Campus Crusade material. So it was popularized by the Schofield Reference Bible and the teachings of Lewis Berry Schaefer, who, who was the president and theologian at Dallas Theological Seminary. Um, and basically they made an interpretive decision regarding 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And what they looked at that passage of Scripture, and they wanted to divide it up into three categories. There's the natural man, the spiritual man, and the carnal man. And so they looked at that passage of Scripture, and they would say the natural man represents the unregenerate person enslaved to sin, the person who's lost. Um, but then they look at the spiritual man and the carnal man as two different types of Christians. Okay, so the spiritual man, so there's, there's three categories. There's, there's the lost person, the natural man, Okay, that person's lost, they're dead in sin, they're unsaved. But within the Christians, there's two types of Christians. There's the spiritual man who's a Christian, and there's the carnal man, which is a different type of Christian. And the spiritual man represents the victorious, spirit-filled believer, while the carnal man represents an immature believer who's not yet learned to walk in the Spirit, who basically lives like an unsaved person. J. Robertson McQuilkin says, Scripture recognizes a basic difference among Christians. It distinguishes between carnal Christians who behave like unconverted people and spiritual Christians whose life is dominated by the Spirit. All Christians are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, but some Christians are filled with the Spirit. Notice what he says there. There are a category of Christians who behave like unconverted people. Now you have to struggle with that statement. Do we want to create an entire group of Christians who basically are Christians, but they act like non-Christians. What does Paul actually say in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 1-4? through 4? Let, let's, let's let Paul speak for himself, and let's unpack this, this passage of Scripture. Paul writes, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you're not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? You've got to understand the context of why Paul is addressing this. Paul, from the very beginning in 1 Corinthians, is addressing factions in the church. 
this propensity in the church to elevate their favorite preacher to this super apostle status. Some in the church were following Peter. Peter's my guy. I'm following Peter. Some were following Apollos. If you remember, he was the the great orator out of Corinth who was able to debate publicly and win many arguments. Some were following Paul. And so through their immaturity, these various groups were causing divisions in the church in Corinth. And so when addressing this, Paul doesn't make two categories of Christians. He doesn't do that. What he's actually doing, he's, he's basically mocking them and using a metaphor saying, you guys are behaving like babies. And, and, and you, you guys are acting like, like babies. In chapter 1, verse 2, Paul says from the very beginning, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So if you go back earlier in the letter, clearly from the outset, Paul views these believers as saints who've been set apart by God's calling, by God's grace through the gospel. He does not address them as carnal Christians. How does he address them from the very beginning? You are saints. You are one who has placed your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. Now, this does not mean that every single Christian is as fully sanctified as he or she could be, but that we're all on a journey of progressive growth. Sometimes saints act like sinners because of indwelling sin, but that is not our true nature as those who have been born again. I would encourage you to read a little booklet, and I think it's put out by Banner of Truth Trust. And it's, it's a booklet, it's not a book, um, but it's, it's by a man named Ernest Reisinger. What should we think about the carnal Christian, and he deals in depth with this and does a great treatment of really arguing against this. And listen to what he writes. He says, The spiritual may be but babes in grace and babes in knowledge. Their faith may be weak. Their love may be in its early bud. Their spiritual senses may be a little but exercised. Their faults may be many. But if the root of the matter is in them, and they have passed from death unto life, passed out of the region of nature into that which is beyond nature, they are all spiritual men, although in some aspects of their behavior they may temporarily fail to appear as such. In other words, what he says is there are two key observations about immature believers. First of all, what really counts is the root of the matter. The root of the matter means, obviously, they have been regenerated, they've been converted through God's faith. And secondly, the temporary beha- the behavior is only temporary. Temporary. And so Paul knows nothing here of a third class of, of people. Okay, so, so here's what the carnal Christian theology does. It really gives three classes of people. You've got lost people and you've got saved people, but within saved people, you've got two categories. You've got the carnal Christians who are saved, who are regenerate, but they're acting just like lost people. And then you've got the truly saved people who are acting like saved people. The Bible knows no distinction of a third category. You're either lost or you're saved. You're either a child of Adam or you're a child of, of, of God in Christ. You've either passed from life to death, from death to life. There's no, there's no third category. The Bible does not know the third category. What they're misunderstanding is that every believer is regenerate. Every believer is a disciple. They're just on a different um, progress of, of growth. 
And one thing that this Keswick movement does is it, it makes a differentiation between um, sold-out disciples, absolutely surrendered disciples, and then just your average Joe Christian. Basically, again, like I said earlier, a disciple is an advanced believer who has fully surrendered his life to Christ. He walks in the Spirit, and he stands above the average Christian. For example, when I often teach on the Great Commission's charge to make disciples of all nations, many will come to me and they'll say, Hey, hey Pastor Sean, you've lumped disciples and converts together as one group. They will say that a Christian or a convert is a person who's first trusted Christ for salvation, but then you've got to move beyond that to become a disciple. And they'll often argue with me, man, a disciple is one who's truly serious about Jesus, whereas just a Christian is just an average believer who does not show a zeal for Jesus. And again, what we see here is this two-tiered system of believers. You've got the seriously committed, all-out, fully-blown, spirit-filled believers... And then you've got your average Christian, your mediocre Christian. What the Keswick view fails to see is that every Christian is indeed a disciple and that every disciple is on his or her own path of growth and progressive sanctification. Some disciples have matured more quickly, while others have not. But yet every person who claims the name of Christ as Savior and Lord is a disciple. B.B. Warfield really combated this um, really idea uh, uh, really he he wrote back in the late 1800s early 1900s interacting with the keswick movement especially interacting with the the wesleyan and the nazarene movement and and bb warfield says this there are not two kinds of christians although there are christians at every conceivable stage of advancement toward the one goal to which we are all bound and at which we will all arrive this was a review of lewis sperry schaefer's he that is spiritual in the princeton theological review Listen to John 8, 31-32. Jesus defines a disciple. Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now there's some potential pitfalls here when you think about this two-tiered class of super-advanced, spirit-filled believers who've had this crisis of faith versus your average Joe Christian who struggles with sin. Because maybe you're listening to this and you're like, Man, I'm an average Joe Christian. I love Jesus. I read my Bible. I have my quiet time, but I struggle. It's a daily struggle. I'm not that advanced believer like some people are. So there are some potential pitfalls, some problems with dividing up believers into this two-tiered class of, of Christians. Really, first of all, what it does is it gives false assurance. This is one of my biggest concerns. It gives false assurance to those who've been labeled a carnal Christian when in fact they may have never been soundly saved in the first place. Here's what happens oftentimes. People are told, you don't really need to worry about examining yourselves. You don't need to make your calling and election sure. You're just a carnal Christian. You haven't reached this victorious stage in your life. And so what can happen is they can become deluded in a false sense of security. Basically what they've been told repeatedly is that once saved, always saved. You've asked Jesus to be Savior. You just haven't fully accepted Him as Lord or surrendered Him Lord. You've got your free ticket to heaven. Once saved, always saved. You've prayed the prayer. You've asked Jesus into your heart. 
But I can continue to live like a non-believer. I can continue to no show, show no, no evidence of regeneration. I can never submit to Christ as, law, as Lord. And I'm okay. You're just a carnal Christian. One day you'll eventually surrender to the Lordship of Christ, but you're just a carnal Christian. I wholeheartedly embrace the doctrine of perseverance of the saints. But a person has to be a saint in the first place in order for God to ensure that he or she endures to the end. Unregenerate people, lost people, who've been labeled carnal Christians, living in total rebellion to Christ, have been told that Christ is their Savior. They've received their fire insurance from hell. And then later on down the road, you can make this life-altering decision to make Jesus Lord. But here's the problem. Nowhere in Scripture do we ever find a person trusting Christ simply as Savior, and then at a point later in time, surrendering, surrendering to Him as Lord. See, the carnal Christian fallacy allows a person to enjoy all the sinful benefits of acting like a lost person while at the same time being told you're simply carnal and not, not victorious. And in the end, that could send a person to hell with a false sense of assurance. You see, genuine saving faith produces a new creation in Christ evidenced by ongoing Repentance. The carnal Christian teaching cuts the guts out of the doctrine of regeneration because basically what it argues is that a sinner can be saved by grace through the power of the gospel but show no transformational change in behavior. Again, there are not two categories of Christians. Instead, there are two categories of people overall, those who have life in Christ through regeneration and those who do not, who are still spiritually dead in their trespasses. You know, J. Gresham Machen, in his book, What is Faith?, makes this excellent statement in regards to what true saving faith is. He says, faith involves a change of the whole nature of man. It involves a new hatred of sin and a new hunger and thirst after righteousness. Such a wonderful change is not the work of man. Faith itself is given us by the Spirit of God. It is quite inconceivable that a man should be given this faith in Christ, that he should accept this gift with which Christ offers and still go on contentedly in sin. Powerful statement. In other words, all sinners who God makes saints through salvation will hate sin, will show transformation, and will not go on contentedly, happily in patterns of disobedience. Now, we may fall into periods of of gross sin from time to time or a season of backsliding, but in the end, God will discipline us. He will bring us back to the place where we continue to pursue Him. John MacArthur comments on the weakness of the carnal Christian myth by saying this, Note also that Paul did not urge the Corinthians to seek some second-level experience. He did not counsel them to, quote, make Christ Lord or rededicate themselves once and for all. On the contrary, he told them, You're not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you to the end, blameless for the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's in his book, The Gospel According to the Apostles. Instead of urging supposed carnal Christians to seek a second-level experience of victory, what needs to happen is that lost sinners need to repent of their sins and place their faith in Christ alone so that for the very first time they can experience regeneration or saving faith. You see, the Keswick teaching leads to a false sense of assurance. 
Countless non-believers are coddled into thinking that their eternal destiny is safely intact when in fact they are facing the intimate danger of hell itself, being told they're a carnal Christian. Andy Nacelli, again in his, his great work, Let Go and Let God, writes this, A major problem with Keswick theology is that rather than causing professing believers to examine themselves to see whether they are genuine believers persevering in the faith, It exhorts them to move from category one, carnal Christian, to category two, spirit-filled Christian. An unintentional result of dividing Christians into two distinct categories is that it may have a comforting, soothing effect on professing believers who are not actually genuine believers by giving them a false assurance of salvation. Weakness number two. So the the first weakness is this two-tiered carnal Christian whole idea that there are two tiers of of Christian. But there's another weakness in the Keswick theology of sanctification. It promotes quietism or passivity in the pursuit of holiness and argues that any effort or struggle on our part comes from the flesh. And that in itself is unhelpful and that is actually sinful. So what is quietism? Well, it's summed up in the popular slogan, let go and let God. It views any striving, any struggle, any energy exerted in our battle with sin as counterproductive to reaching true victory. And so instead of struggling with sin, fighting sin, making every effort to kill sin, we need to passively and quietly allow God to take over and to move through us to achieve this spirit-filled level of of victory. And the believer does this through surrendering instead of striving. You don't strive, you surrender. Now, J.I. Packer, in his awesome book, Keep in Step with the Spirit, I highly recommend J.I. Packer's book, Keep in Step with the Spirit. He, he deals with a lot of this, this stuff. He says this um, quote, The teachers of Keswick censored all conscious exertion toward obedience as expressing self-reliance and all laboring to do right as the energy of the flesh. And they insisted that the way of faith is consciously to let Christ do things in and through you rather than try to do them yourself. And he defines quietism as, quietism holds that all initiatives on our part or any sort are the energy of the flesh. That God will move us, if at all, by inner promptings and constraints that are recognizably not thoughts and impulses of our own, and that we should always be seeking the annihilation of selfhood so that the divine life may flow freely through our physical frames. Now, let me unpack what he means by that. What he's basically saying is that any descriptions of exerting energy in the pursuit of holiness are frowned upon as self-reliance, works of the flesh, instead of Christ-reliance, spirit-filled, and therefore they're sinful. J. Robertson McQuilkin, in the book, Five Views of of Sanctification, this is a a good book that also kind of uh, elaborates on the differences between these. He is a Keswick theologian. He says this, For Christians who are experiencing a subnormal life, re-entry into normal, supernatural Christian living is through the gate of surrender. They may concentrate their energies on gaining a more accurate understanding or on experiencing some emotional sense of release or well-being, but such efforts will all prove fruitless until you make the choice to yield. 
Notice the words, you need to yield. You need to surrender. You need to let go and let God. But we're left with the quandary. At least I was left with the quandary. This is what so frustrated me when I was growing up. What does it actually mean to yield? What does it mean to surrender? What does this mean? Well, the proponents of the Keswick view affirm that it's got to be some type of emotional crisis that moves you to make a decisive commitment to absolutely surrender to Christ. Now, this sounds very spiritual. It sounds appealing to those who truly struggle with sin. But it misunderstands Paul's teachings in Romans chapter 6. In Romans chapter 6, Paul describes the reality of what every believer who has been justified by God's grace experiences. He says, once we've been saved, I'm paraphrasing Paul here, we are no longer under the dominion or the tyranny or the rule of sin. Sin is no longer our master. In essence, we've died to the rule or to the mastery of sin in our lives through our union with Christ, and and we now have a new identity. But we as believers are are dead to sin's bondage and, and this rule in our lives. We're dead to that. But this does not mean that we no longer struggle with sin as a presence or a pollution in our lives. You see, its power and its dominion have been destroyed through justification, but the pollution and presence of indwelling sin still remains. And as such, Paul tells us in Romans 6, we are to pursue holiness. And negatively, we do this by not offering our bodies to indulge the flesh through our sinful passions. Paul says this in Romans 6, 12-13, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from life to death, and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. Paul here does not say that any struggle or any striving to do this is sinful. He does not tell us, nowhere does Paul ever tell us to passively and quietly let go and let God. Instead, he gives a strong imperative for us to be active in putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Since sin has no dominion or power over us as this enslaving force in our lives, we must vigorously come to terms with its presence in our lives and put it to death. But what Keswick or quietism or passivism basically believes is that any struggling, any striving shows that you're not absolutely surrendered. You're not yielding. Again, Andy Nacelli writes, Keswick theology chronologically separates justification from progressive sanctification by emphasizing a crisis of consecration subsequent to justification that enables genuine progressive sanctification. This essentially divides Christ as one whom people can, quote, take as their justifier without taking him as their sanctifier. Packer gives a great quote in his book, Keeping Step with the Spirit. He says, The Christian's motto should not be, let go and let God. Instead, it should be, trust God and get going. For instance, if you're fighting a bad habit, work out before God a strategy for ensuring that you will not fall victim to it again. Ask Him to bless your plan and go out in His strength, ready to say no the next time the temptation comes. Let's give you an example. Let's think about a young, engaged couple. Lance and Ashley. These are just made-up names. They've made a serious commitment as a young Christian couple who's engaged to remain sexually pure before marriage. But yet, their wedding day is a year away. So they've got this long wait. And they find themselves struggling with sexual temptation. And they've grown up in a Keswick church, which teaches them to let go and let God. 
And they're told to fully surrender. Just, just fully surrender yourselves and be victorious over sin. Now, taken to its most logical conclusion, here's how this potential scenario would play out. Okay, so they find themselves in a darkened room. They're watching a movie in the basement of their parents' house. No one's home. The surge of hormones race into overdrive. They're, they're, they're faced with overwhelming temptation. And they begin to wonder, have I truly surrendered enough to God? Have I let Him have His way in our relationship? In, in, a, in a fit of passion, while they're there raging with hormones, they passively, quietly wait for God to come to the rescue, rescue and give them victory over sin at this crisis of faith where they'll be filled with the Spirit. And when this help doesn't come in a way that they can feel it, or there's no inner promptings, what do they do? They give in and they have sex. And then they respond in guilt, shame, and they get mad. They, they, they think, why, why didn't God come to our rescue? We, we, we let go and let God and we, we were just passively waiting for Him to come zap us with instant sanctification and He didn't come to our rescue. Why would he deliver? Why didn't he deliver us from temptation? You see, there's a subtle weakness of this type of teaching because it does include some actual truths from Scripture. God does help us in times of weakness. God does deliver us from temptation. God does provide a way of escape. But does he automatically do it when we passively let go and let God? Michael Horton of the White Horse Inn and Modern Reformation in Westminster Seminary has written an older book back in the 90s, In the Face of God. I would recommend that book. He says this, Many of us raised in evangelicalism remember the altar call and rededication or summer camp resolutions in this manner. A particularly sinful week could be atoned for by rededicating ourselves in a public meeting to, quote, start over with Christ. This amounts to nothing less than a Protestant version of penance. That's a powerful statement. You see, instead of letting go and letting God, what should have Lance and Ashley done as this young couple? They should have made some resolute commitments to not be alone together in a compromising situation in the first place. They should have come to grips with the overwhelming presence of sin in their hearts and lust in their lives. They should have developed a strategy to remain pure through active diligence and obedience. They should have opened themselves up to an older married couple who could have held them accountable through prayer and encouragement. And so instead of seeing victory over sin as the ultimate aim in some passive let go and let God moment that was like goosebumps or inner promptings, they should have been more concerned with obedience, setting up a strategy of obedience, not making provision for the flesh, as Paul says in Romans 13, to obey God's clear word on sexual immorality. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3-5 says this, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Notice what Paul says there that you learn how to control, that you know how to control. He doesn't say passively let go and let God and just hope that you can reach this crisis of faith where you never give in to temptation and you reach this higher level of victory. You know, often the teachers of Keswick can sometimes be confusing because they focus on inner promptings. They put an overemphasis on experience to the neglect of sheer obedience to God's will. Let's go back to Lance and Ashley, this, this made-up young couple. They're tempted with sexual sin. Do they need to wait for an inner prompting or a subjective feeling for them to surrender in that moment and let go and let God? 
What if God doesn't give it? What if the inner prompting is the lust of their heart that they want to go full throttle? Or do they determine beforehand to explicitly obey God's commandments concerning sexual purity so they, they don't need to rely on inner promptings to tell them whether to move forward or not? You see, the Keswick model of sanctification argues that any effort, any effort ex- exerted on our part in struggling with sin or pursuing holiness comes from the flesh. You're working out of the flesh. It's counterproductive. You're not going to experience true victory. But what does the Scripture teach about striving in our attempt to become more Christ-like? There's three key passages in the New Testament that teach that we struggle, we strive, we work out our salvation. The first one is is Philippians 2, 12-13. I had mentioned this earlier. So let's look at these verses together. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 13. Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Now, this is a verse that combines two issues of progressive sanctification in this fight against sin. And if you uh, leave these two verses in isolation and don't put them together, you have an imbalance. For example, in verse 12, Paul commands us, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And that's an imperative. It's a command. We're to work it out. We're to put forth effort. We're to do it with fear and trembling. We're to grow in holiness. We're to fight sin, fight temptation. But if verse 12 was all that we had, it would seem like that all we were doing is we were doing all the work, which would lead to legalism or moralism or some type of self-effort in this fight against sin. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, there's actually verse 13 that comes right after verse 12. And it tells us it's God who works in you. And what does God do when he's working in you? He, he, he works to both will and to work for his good pleasure. So God does something. He puts the desire in you to actually want to be holy. And he actually puts the ability in you to do that. So In your sanctification as a Christian, he puts within you the desire for holiness and the ability to pursue holiness so that at the end of the day, if there's any fruit, if there's any growth, it is God who has produced that. But you still have a responsibility to work out your own salvation. And so you see these two things coming together. There's a working together. Now, the other verse that we want to look at is... 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. This brings up another question about striving or struggling in the Christian life. Is it sinful to put forth any effort or any work? Where the Keswick view would say any working of the flesh, any type of effort, any type of strenuous exertion that you do in this battle against sin is sinful. But what does Paul say? He says, rather train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Paul commands us here to train yourself. It's in the present active, which means to do this on a continuous basis as a lifestyle. Keep on continually training yourself for godliness. It really comes from the world of athletics where we get our word gymnastics. It's the Greek word gymnazo. 
And so when Olympic athletes in the first century, when Paul was living, would prepare for the Olympic Games, they would go into strict physical training. And so Paul borrows this word from the athletic world to vividly illustrate the the grueling nature in which we as Christians must strive to grow in holiness. Duff Gibson. Duff Gibson holds the honor of being the oldest person to win a gold medal in an individual sport. In the Winter Olympics of 2006 in Italy, he won the skeleton race, which is similar to luge or bobsledding. At 39 years old, in skeleton racing, the athlete rides face down on this small sled flying down a track that forces up to 5Gs. And for years, Gibson practiced on the ice, training his body for that one moment in history when he would finally win the gold medal. 39 years old. Now think about the rigorous schedules athletes have to, 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 to endure to prepare for the Olympics and how much time and energy they, they put in the gym or on the field or on the slopes. And so first-class Olympic athletes are not haphazard, even though they may have a great deal of natural talent. They discipline themselves every day. They train every day with intensity and passion. Think about Olympic swimmer Michael Phelps. Spends up to eight hours a day in the pool. This is the type of intensity that Paul describes when it comes to training ourselves for godliness. And so instead of letting go and letting God, Paul says diligently, go to the gym, work out spiritually, put forth energy so that you can grow in godliness. In addition to Paul's teaching, we have to go look at 2 Peter. In 2 Peter Chapter 1, verses 5 through 8, Peter says, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does Peter command us to do in this passage? He says, make every effort to keep on continually growing in godliness so that you won't become ineffective in your spiritual walk with Christ. And to add emphasis on this, Peter uses a strong expression in the original Greek. He really combines two words together to convey this idea of urgency and quickness and energy. He really says, speed up, hurry up, hurry up in making every effort to do this. It's this whole idea of get passionate about it. Start doing it now. Set forth some effort. And this verb is a cry, a far cry from the the passive let go and let God quietism of the Keswick view of sanctification. A few years ago, back in 2011, our family went to Disneyland. And we had the convenience of taking advantage of the fast pass. Um, my son is special needs. He's got a disability. He's got autism as well as some other disabilities. And so we were able to get the, the fast pass as well as the disability pass. And so Star Tours um, and was the inaugural year of the new Star Tours. And we got to ride that ride like four or five times when the line was like six hours long because we had the fast pass. It makes waiting in line a thing of the past. And, and most of us don't like waiting in lines. We're, we're impatient 
We see it all around us. And, and there's overnight fad diets. We have high-speed Internet. We have FedEx overnight mail. Uh, we've got apps on our iPhones and tablets. Uh, we, we live in this what I call microwave magic world. Uh, when I was growing up, sometimes in high school, when I had basketball practice and I, and, and I didn't have time to eat meal with my parents, we'd, we'd get microwave magic meals. Um, also, nowadays, you know, most people don't like watching TV in real time. Um, we DVR or TiVo so we can go past the commercials. And so we live in a culture that demands instant gratification, instant pleasure. We want things yesterday. And I think the Keswick view of sanctification sort of buys into this mentality. Uh, there's another weakness in this doctrine of pursuing holiness that it really claims that sanctification is instant And you can have complete victory over all known sin in this crisis moment. If you use these techniques such as letting go and letting God, or you cease from striving, or you absolutely surrender your life, you can instantaneously experience this higher level of spirituality. So for example, a person struggling with the sin of pornography in a crisis moment may absolutely surrender and be instantly free from ever watching pornography Again, And so the question we've got to ask is, does a Christian struggle over long periods of time to kill sin? Or is this instantaneous surrender and victory uh, real? So does the Bible teach instantaneous and complete victory over all known sin in this life? Can we, through a simple process of letting go and letting God, never ever have to struggle with sin again? My wife and I really enjoy hiking here in our home state of Colorado. And a few summers ago, we decided to face the challenge that we really wanted to do for a long time. And in Colorado, there's, they're called 14ers. They're the, the mountain peaks that are over 14,000 feet. And so we wanted to climb a 14er. And so we went to Gray's Peak, which is close to Breckenridge. And we were told it was a relatively easy 14er. And so um, we spent four hours getting up there and catching our breath, especially when you got above the timberline where the altitude was really low. And we had these 20-somethings come and passing us up. And, um, and, and so we really came to reinterpret the term mountaintop experience. Um, it was really kind of grueling. There were a lot of twists and turns. There were peaks and valleys. There were flat meadows. But, but in the end, it was all uphill. And there was no instantaneous arrival to get to the top of the mountain, unless, of course, we flew in by helicopter and just got dropped in. You see, the Christian life is not a casual helicopter flight with immediate results to the top of the mountain. But it's, as John Bunyan has captured in his book, A Pilgrim's Progress, See, we as Christians are on this lifelong journey. And this journey is full of struggles and heartaches and sometimes adventure and sometimes doubt and sometimes victory on our way to the celestial city. Bishop J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness, which I highly recommend. One of the better books, it's it's an older book back from the 1800s on holiness. It's not influenced by a lot of the pop psychology and watered-down theology that we have in our day. Um, It's by Bishop J.C. Ryle. He was the Bishop of Liverpool. Um, He says this, quote, The theory of a sudden mysterious transition of a believer into a state of blessedness and entire consecration at one mighty bound I cannot receive. It appears to me to be a man-made invention 
and I do not see a single plain text to prove it in Scripture. So he's pretty clear there. B.B. Uh, Warfield also warns against the expectations of this instantaneous sanctification. He says this, It's glowing and romantic overtures that offer life on a higher plane are ultimately offers of victory to the impatient. To the impatient. Now, we find Scripture's emphasis on the reality of indwelling sin sprinkled throughout the New Testament. For example, in Galatians 5.17, Paul says, For the desires of the flesh are against the desires of the Spirit. These are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. So when God saves you by His sovereign grace, in His sovereignty, He does not eradicate sin out of our lives. We still have the desires of the flesh. But by the same token, He's also given us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us. And so the desires of our flesh, the indwelling sin, is waging war against the desires of the Holy Spirit. And Paul really gives this imagery of warfare, this continual warfare between the flesh and the Spirit. And Paul nowhere intimates in this passage in Galatians that a believer will ever achieve a complete and instantaneous victory over all known sin. Instead, what does he say? Listen, Christian, I'm going to guarantee something to you. You're going to have a lifelong internal battle between your fleshly desires and the desires of the Holy Spirit. And the battle is going to finally end the moment you step foot into heaven. There's a frustration that happens in Keswick theology. It's this introspection that sometimes happens. It really leads to an unhealthy introspection where you as a believer constantly wondering, you're wondering this, have I surrendered enough? Have I yielded enough? Have I consecrated myself enough? Have I had this crisis? And it leads to frustration when sometimes you still battle sin. And sometimes Christians who have tender consciences offer wonder, why am I still struggling? I mean, I've let go and let God so many times, but yet I still seem to struggle with this one sin. How much do I know? Have I let go enough? Have I let God enough? How how do I know if I've surrendered enough? Is there external evidence that shows me? Or is it something I just feel? Is it a prompting or impression deep inside me? How, How do I know? Well, frustrated believers begin to question their faith. And then you begin to wonder, is there, is there something wrong with me? Because I, I still struggle. It's still a battle for me. And I see these Christians around me that have victory over sin. Did I not do the technique correctly? Was I not consistent enough? Was I not serious enough? And I've met some people that have actually been led to despair because they begin to wonder, am I even a Christian? Because I've not reached this plane of this higher victorious spirituality. And so I'm a have-not And I've been told by the haves that I need to stop striving. I just let go on that God. You need to arrive at this moment of absolute surrender, and then you're going to have immediate, instantaneous victory over all known sin. And then they may feel like they need to do something, so they they rededicate their life for the 40th time at the altar because they hope against hope that maybe this time they've surrendered enough, they've yielded enough to have that victory. And sometimes they wait around for this emotional crisis so that they can yield and and be filled with the Holy Spirit. But then what if this crisis never comes? Or or what if they miss it? What if the everyday crisis 
is, is living in a state of warfare, and it's a normal part of being a Christian. Michael Horton has written a book called In the Face of God. Again, I highly recommend this book. He says, War with sin and doubt, guilt and depression are not signs of defeat, but proof of Christ's victory. After all, those who are not baptized into Christ by the Spirit are at peace with sin and unbelief. The absence of war within is truly only of people in one of two states, unregenerate or glorified. The believer is presently neither. Such conflict is not the evidence that one is a carnal Christian, but is the genuine experience of every true believer throughout the course of this life. If you've struggled with sin and you've not experienced this immediate victory, I don't want you to think of yourself as a second-class Christian, but think of yourself as a pilgrim on this long and winding road to heaven. And be encouraged by Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. God will sovereignly bring you to that place. And in your frustration and desire to see growth in your battle against sin, Find hope in the fact that the Savior will bring it to completion. You see, in the end, this Keswick teaching on sanctification really leaves believers with an inadequate answer to help them in their quest to truly kill sin. Instead of passively surrendering to Christ through this fuzzy technique that we really don't know what it is, let go and let God, Paul talks about it being a warfare in 1 Timothy 1.8. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Wage the good warfare. So, so far we've looked at some different views of how to kill sin. We've looked at the Wesleyan view. We've looked at the Pentecostal view. We've looked at the Keswick view. Uh, Another view that's out there is what I call the emergent or the contemplative view. This borrows really heavily from Roman Catholic mysticism. You may hear things like labyrinths or Christian yoga or Lectio Divina or centering prayer. All these different types of mystical experiences to somehow reach this plane of higher spirituality. And really, it comes from some of the major players of the medieval church in Rome. Thomas Akempis, Teresa of Avila, St. John of the Cross, uh, Madame Guyon, Julian of Norwich, uh, Brother Lawrence. Uh, they really have tried to create what's really Gnostic mysticism, which really heavily relies upon meditation. They really take you outside of sola scriptura, which means that scripture alone, instead of the scriptures being the, pro- the, the ultimate and primary guide and truth and foundation and standard for our spirituality, they tell you to look inside. They tell you to practice some type of non-prescribed practice that we never see in the Bible, that's alien to the Bible, to somehow experience this true spirituality. And some of the, even the radical Anabaptists during the, the Protestant Reformation, you know, the Protestant reformers, the magisterial reformers, like John Calvin and Erwin Zwingli and Martin Luther, 
really combated the Roman Catholic mysticism and all of the trappings of the Roman Catholic view of spirituality, and they combated a lot of that. But at the same time, during the Protestant Reformation, there was the radical Anabaptists. And even in the radical Anabaptist movement, we saw a lot of this stuff. And probably one of the biggest promoters of that right now in the past 20, 30 years is Richard Foster in his book, Celebration of Discipline. In which really, sadly, a lot of evangelical Christians embrace a lot of his practices there, but really most of it is devoid of biblical truth and very mystical. Uh, George Fox, back in 1624 to 1691, he was the founder of the Quakers who espoused this view that all humans have this inner light inside of us that helps us get in tune with our mystical self to be able to recognize God. And so there's the, the, what I call the mystical or emergent or the contemplative movement that really borrows from Roman Catholic mysticism, radical Anabaptist mysticism, and it totally takes the scripture out of this whole issue of fighting sin, dealing with sin. So what's the last view? What's the the view that I think is the most biblical view? Well, it's the Reformed view, the Reformed evangelical view, the view that I hold to. And so what I want us to do is to look at a key passage of Scripture that deals with this issue. And that comes from Romans chapter 8, verse 13. Paul says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Put to death the deeds of the body. It's oftentimes called mortification of sin. John Owen, in his book, The Mortification of Sin, if there's any book that you could read on this whole issue that would be the book that I would read. It's a classic. I've read it three or four times. I go back to it on numerous occasions. So rich, so deep. Uh, very, very um, enlightening on, on this whole. He, he, the Puritans of the ancient days, back in the, the 15 and 1600s, they understood the human soul better than we do. They weren't influenced by mysticism or psychobabble or emergent theology or all these weird things that we have today but they had a true understanding of the human soul and how the scripture spoke into that you know i don't know if you've ever either seen the movie or read the book in between a rock and a hard place about mountain climber aaron ralston back in 2003 while he was hiking in utah he was pinned between the canyon wall and an 800 pound boulder and it was crushing his right forearm and he'd spent five days in dehydration, and he, he basically almost become, became delirious. There was no way he could get loose from being in this boulder to dislodge himself. And so he, he had a utility knife on him, a kind of dull utility knife, and he actually cut off his arm. And so amputation was a drastic measure in order for this man, Ralston, to survive. And this story of cutting off or killing eerily captures some of Jesus' words in Mark 9, 43. Jesus says, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. You think about that. It sounds kind of violent. How are we to take these emphatic words of Jesus that command us to be brutal with our sin? Kill it. Cut it off. I think Jesus uses exaggeration and hyperbole here to really show us the severity of sin. 
It's like John Owen says, we must be killing sin or it will be killing you. You need to deal forcefully with your sin because it's such a powerful force in our lives that we need to understand. Now, let's look at this passage in Romans 8.31. It talks about living according to flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So we need to ask some some questions that emerge from this text. First of all, what does it mean to live according to the flesh? Secondly, what exactly are the deeds of the body? Thirdly, what does it actually look like to kill sin? And fourth, what role do we actually play in killing sin? And what role does the Holy Spirit play? So four crucial questions related to Romans 8.13. So let's answer the first question. Paul tells us that if we live according to the flesh... We will die. So a spiritual death occurs when a person lives ultimately to feed the flesh. And the key to understanding what it means to live according to the flesh comes in the tense of the verb. Paul uses the present active indicative, which denotes continuous action. In other words, what Paul's saying is if your habitual lifestyle is marked by constantly as a lifestyle, continually living according to your sinful desires... The end result is going to be spiritual death. And so what I think Paul is saying here is that if you are a truly unregenerate person, it will be proved out in your totality of your life by living according to the flesh. And even if you think you're a Christian and you're not, you're a false convert and you continually live according to the flesh, you fooled yourself and you will die. And so we have to understand here what he's talking about. If a person is truly born again, You have new desires. You have new affections. You deeply long to worship Jesus, to obey Jesus, to follow Jesus. And so because of the new birth, because of regeneration, the entire course of your life is different. You are wanting to pursue holiness. You have a desire to do that. You've been saved by grace. So I think Paul here is talking about a person who over the course of their life lives according to the flesh, it will be proved out that they were truly not a Christian in the first place and they will experience what all non-believers experience and that is spiritual death and hell. I think it's a warning to unregenerate people and it's also a warning to people that may think they're Christians that aren't putting to death the deeds of the body. So Paul says, put to death the deeds of the body. So this comes to the second question. What are the deeds of the body? Well, deeds of the body, we may initially think that this deals with actual sins that we commit with our body parts, like with our hands and our ears and our eyes and our feet. But I think that we can look at the context that Paul is arguing throughout Romans 6-8, through that the deeds of the body can be synonymous with the works of the flesh. In other words, the deeds of the body can be outward actions of sin that we commit with actual body parts as well as internal sins of the heart, such as lust or an unforgiving spirit or greed. So external sins committed with our body, theft, lying, adultery, sexual immorality, as well as internal desires. And and Paul gives a complimentary passage which helps us to understand this. In the book of Colossians chapter 3, verses 5-8, through Paul says, put to death, same terminology, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. So he uses this term earthly. In Romans, he calls it um, deeds of the body. In Colossians, he calls it earthly. And then he defines what is earthly. Sexual immorality, impurity, 
passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. If you notice this list that Paul gives, they're both internal sins and external sins. Evil desire is an internal sin, which could lead to covetousness, which is an external sin. In the same manner, anger is an internal sin, but it could lead to slander or obscene talk. And so I think what Paul is saying, deeds of the body put to death, the deeds of the body are put to death, that what is earthly, I think he's talking about any type of sin which is actually external or internal. So let's ask the third question. What does it look like to actually kill sin? How do we put to death the King James Version uses the word mortify. I think in the old, you know, we don't really understand what mortified means. When we, when we use the word mortified in our culture, it means that you know, I, was, I was ashamed, I was mortified. But the Puritans of old, like John Owen and others, really called this the process of killing sin. And that's the word used here in Romans 8.13. It actually means to put to death. It was oftentimes used as an execution. And Paul, again, uses the present active indicative verb choice to show that this is not just a one-time action, but putting to death involves an ongoing, continual, brutal, endless lifestyle of mortification. And so, sin never sleeps. Sin never sleeps. It doesn't fall asleep at the will. John Owen says this about sin. Sin will not only be striving, acting, rebelling, troubling, disquieting, but if left alone, if not continually killed, it will bring forth great, cursed, scandalous, soul-destroying sins. In other words, he's saying sin does not take a break. So neither should we when it comes to this battle. We can never sleep. I mean, what did Jesus remind his disciples just hours before his betrayal? In Matthew 26, 40 through 41. He came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Randy Gardner holds the world record for going the longest time without any sleep. 11 days. <laughs> in 1964, as a high school student in San Diego... He underwent a scientific study with a researcher from Stanford University to see how many days a person could go without sleep, not using any stimulants of any kind. And so eventually the human body shuts down and has to give in to the innate need for sleep. You cannot physically stay awake forever. But here's the issue. Sin never sleeps. It stays awake incessantly. And because sin never sleeps... Because sin continually pursues us, and because sin desires nothing but a hostile takeover of our souls, we need to adopt the same attitude against sin. We need to actively, consistently, and fervently kill sin. Now, one caution needs to be articulated here before we go any further. Ultimate killing or mortification or total death of sin will never occur in this life, we will never totally kill all sin. This total victory over sin should never be an expected part of our growth. Our aim 
obviously should be to kill it, but in reality, this will never happen this side of heaven. And so we may experience seasons of wonderful success and victory against sin, but we'll never get to the point where we no longer have to practice the grueling process of mortification. In other words, you will not achieve a state of sinless perfection, Wesleyanism, in Keswick theology, you, you, you may not ever receive that instant victory through that crisis of absolute surrender. So the moment we get to the point where we think that sin can no longer deceive us or manipulate us or somehow lies dormant within us, it's the moment we become the most vulnerable. What, first, what does 1 John 1, 8 say? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. A few years back, I was watching Jesse Duplantis, which is a, a white-haired uh, Cajun televangelist from Louisiana that thinks he's a stand-up comic but never actually preaches out the Bible. He's, he's a heretical word faith teacher. And I was watching him just briefly because I couldn't handle much of it. But he was saying this basic, I'll, I'll, I'll paraphrase him. I'll try to talk like him. He says, I've gotten to the point where I never struggle with sin anymore. And I feel sorry for y'all if y'all still struggle with sin because I just got the point where I don't struggle with sin. If the devil come around to me, I say, devil, you get away. You'll have no right here. I never struggle with sin anymore. And I pity you guys that have to stop. He didn't say you guys. I pity y'all who struggle with sin because I got to the point where I don't struggle with sin anymore. I just don't sin. Now, that's the moment that 1 John 1, 8 needs to come into his mind where it says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So let's talk about mortification of sin or killing sin or putting sin to death. Let's first of all talk about what it's not, okay? So it has to be something that we constantly do because the scripture here in Romans eight thirteen says, keep on continually putting to death sin. So, so what is it not? First of all, it's not just a cosmetic makeover, okay? I often, and if I had a whiteboard here, I'd make a drawing, but Picture, your, picture a, a tree with a bunch of fruit growing on it, and then look at the ground, and underneath that, look at the roots. And, and so I think there's root sins, and there are fruit sins. And I think the, the root sins are those deeply ingrained sins that lie way beneath the surface of our lives. Sometimes we are blinded to see. Those root sins would be sins like pride, or lust, or selfishness, or idolatry. idolatry. Fruit sins are those outward expressions of sin that we often equate with things like the Ten Commandments, lying, murder, theft, and adultery. And I think a lot of times we deal with the fruit sins first and don't deal with the root sins. We don't get down to the real issue of what's going on deep in our hearts, and so we just... It's nothing more than just window dressing. It's, more, it's, like a, it's, it's just a makeover. It's a cosmetic issue of trying to cover up outward behavior. Secondly, ignoring and hoping that it goes away, just hoping the sin goes away, that's not truly describing the process of mortification. You don't just ignore sin because remember, sin is never dead in us sin is never like a, a dorm it's like it could be like a dormant volcano at times it's not as powerful as it could be at other times but it's still a volcano and so we're never at that point where we're going to be um, free from sin and then thirdly occasional attempts is not going to work i'm going to occasionally do this i'm going to be haphazard i'm going to be inconsistent you can't relax in this process because when you relax, you drift toward apathy. So, 
What does it mean to kill sin? Let me give you five aspects of killing sin. Five key aspects, I think, that will help you understand. First of all, here's the first aspect. We must have a seething hatred for sin as the enemy it truly is. Romans 12.9 says, Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. So the first thing we need to do is we need to hate our sin. See it the way God sees it. Hate it. Loathe it. Abhor it. Come to the part where you're not comfortable with it, but you actually hate it. Okay, secondly, we need to seriously think about the guilt and corruption of sin. Now, what do I mean by this? We need to look sin in the face and see it for all its ugliness. What does our flesh do? It sometimes darkens our minds so that we don't actually see the corrupting nature of sin and how it truly darkens us. We need to really see how condemning sin really is. There's no such thing as innocent little sins. All sin is offensive to God, and little sins lead to more grievous sins. Thirdly, this killing of sin involves thinking about the shock and danger of sin. Not only do we hate it, and not only do we actually think about its corruption and guilt, but we also need to think about how dangerous it is. We need a healthy dose of the reality of how sin brings ultimate destruction. Think about how you were damaged in the past when you didn't kill sin. Think about the overwhelming consequences of what might happen if you plunge into sin. This is, I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says when he talks about thinking about the guilt of sin. This is what he says. He says this, We have to pull sin out, look at it, denounce it, hate it for what it is. Then you've really dealt with it. Of course, Martin Lloyd-Jones was a doctor. And as a doctor, his job before he became a pastor was to examine patients and find symptoms and really truly discover what the root issue was. And so he was very fond. If you go back and read a lot of Dr. Lloyd-Jones sermons, a lot of them had this whole issue of let's look at the diagnosis and let's look at what it is and what it's not before we actually find the cure. And that's what he's doing with sin. Before you can actually deal with how to get rid of the sin, you've got to pull it out and find out what's really there. And so he says, examine your sin, pull it out, look at it, denounce it, hate it, look at it in the face and find out what it really is. Fourthly, in killing sin, you need to be really intimate, really familiar with particular areas of weakness that you are vulnerable to, and then avoid those areas. You know, you see this in Proverbs 5, but the forbidden woman, when in Proverbs 5 through 8, for the lips of the forbidden women drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol, and she does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Notice how the writer of Proverbs, Solomon says, Don't go near the door of her house. Take every precaution to, to, to keep the maximum distance from her so that you're not dis- seduced. In the same way, when you kill sin, it means you avoid those areas where you're going to be tempted, that you don't put yourself in situations that are going to cause you to stumble. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says, Abstain from every form 
of evil. Fifthly, we need to expose the lie behind the sin and by faith believe the truth of God's word. You see, sin promises pleasure. Don't let anybody ever tell you that sin isn't fun. If it wasn't fun, we wouldn't do it. And so sin promises, sin comes to us. It's called the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews chapter 3 tells us that, the, that, that, that you can become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And so sin deceives us and, and makes us think that it's going to be pleasurable. And so what we need to do is we need to expose that lie. When sin comes to us and promises something that we think is going to be pleasurable, we've got to pull out God's word and, and, and combat it and show how that is an absolute lie and how the scripture addresses that. It's fleeting pleasure. It's pleasure that goes unfulfilled, unfulfilled promises. It's, it's only a passing pleasure. Ultimately, this whole idea of killing sin can be summarized with one word, repentance. When we begin to consistently hate sin, when you seriously think about the guilt and corruption of sin, and when, you, when you're always in a state of shock over the consequences and effects of sins, and you're always exposing sin and then looking at its destruction, what you're doing is you're repenting. And then as you continue to do this through repentance, you're slowly weakening sin in your lives. This is a slow process. It's sometimes a painful process. But you begin to see progress in godliness as sin gets weaker and weaker through repentance. Now, it never fully goes away. But through persistent killing of sin, you see a slow transformation. Now, let's answer the fourth question. We need to be very careful at this point we don't fall into the error of legalistic, moralistic, works-based performance where this killing of sin becomes a sheer act of the will without the help of the Holy Spirit. So the fourth question we must ask is, what role do I play and what role does the Holy Spirit play? Well, back in Romans 8.13, Paul says very clearly, by the Spirit we are to put to death the deeds of the body. By the Spirit. We are called to be active in this. It's interesting. You see two things here. You and I have a responsibility, a command to put to death sin. We've got to do it. But we do it by the help of the Holy Spirit. We're responsible for putting sin to death, but we do this in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is, again, very similar to what Paul says in Philippians 2, 12 through 13. You have the responsibility to work out your salvation. It's your responsibility. You need to do it. But at the same time, it's the, the Holy Spirit. It's God who works in you to actually do that. John Owen, again, I keep coming back to him, gives a compelling a case for this. This is what he says. The Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit, works in us and upon us as we are fit to be wrought in and upon. That is so as to preserve our own liberty and free obedience. He works upon our understandings, wills, consciences, and affections agreeably to their own natures. He works in us and with us, not against us or without us. I like that. He works in us and with us, not against us or without us. In other words, the Holy Spirit works with our regenerated hearts and compels us to obey. But He doesn't obey for us. He works in us, but He does not work without us. 
We're still morally responsible agents. We must take seriously our responsibility, our command to kill sin. But when sin has been killed and true transformation occurs in our growth, we look in humility back to the Holy Spirit who's been the one that has sovereignly wrought this in us. And sometimes it's hard to see this process. And this is where the Keswick view, I think, misunderstands it because they want to give so much credit to the Holy Spirit, and we should, that they, they err, or they err, as some people say, by saying that any type of work that you do, any type of killing of sin, that's in the flesh, and that's not, that's not good. You need to totally let go and let God. Whereas Paul in these passages combines the two. You have the responsibility. You're commanded. Present active and imperative. Keep on continually as a command doing these things. Put to death. Put away kill sin but at the same token it is the holy spirit who's working in you to be able to do this so it's not this let go and let god it is the 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 joint effort really if you will our responsibility and ultimately the holy spirit's responsibility you know jerry bridges in his book pursuit of holiness comments on his own personal experience with this type of thinking he said i misconstrued dependence on the holy spirit to mean i was to make no effort that I had no responsibility. I mistakenly thought if I turned it all over to the Lord, He would make my choices for me and would choose obedience over disobedience. I mean, I often thought that. That's what I grew up thinking. If I just yielded myself, if I just had this crisis of absolute surrender, then God would do the work for me. He'd make the choice for me. He would, he would obey for me. And then I would automatically choose obedience over disobedience. Bishop Ryle again reminds us with these words. He that pretends to condemn fighting and teaches that we ought to sit still and yield ourselves to God appears to me to misunderstand his Bible and to make a great mistake. Have you ever heard of autotomy? What is autotomy? It's a scientific term which describes the act of self-amputation where a lizard severs its own appendages as a self-defense mechanism to evade the clutches of an oncoming predator. Now, here's the amazing thing with this phenomenon. Maybe you've seen it with a lizard or a gecko. Actually, that appendage, that tail, may actually regenerate itself and grow back. Geckos and salamanders will shed part of their tail structure when captured in an attempt to escape. And so in a spiritual sense, think about this. We as believers are called to perform autotomy on our sin. We must amputate, kill sin whenever we fear being captured by its grasp. And in similar fashion to the regeneration of the gecko's tail, our sin will always come back in full force. We will never fully kill sin in this life, but we can be persistent, brutal, and ruthless in this pursuit of killing sin. Remember Jesus' words we looked at just a few moments ago about cutting off your hand if it causes you to sin? I think many times we, we focus so much on the exaggerated hyperbole of Jesus' statement and we try to over-explain what it does. I mean, well, he's not talking about really cutting off your hand, but we actually fail to see what he really is trying to get at. Sin is a ruthless enemy that never sleeps. It constantly attacks us. It manipulates us with deception. And if not weakened and eventually killed, it's going to lead a person straight into hell. I want you to hear the words of Jesus again. 
And instead of trying, and trying to explain away these, these outlandish demands, I want you just to receive it in the shocking manner in which I think it's meant to be received. I think we're meant to stand up in shock at the exaggerated hyperbole statement of Jesus because the stakes are so high. Mark 9, 34, If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. So there's many different views out there on how to kill sin. You've got the Wesleyan view. You've got the Pentecostal view. You've got the Keswick or the higher victorious life view. You've got the mystical emergent contemplative view. And then you have what I think is the biblical view, the reform view of killing sin. You know, I want to leave you with some resources that have really helped me over the years. I've mentioned them as we've gone through this podcast. Again, um, The Pursuit of Holiness by Jerry Bridges is a must read. It's one of the best easy read books on sanctification. Every Christian needs to have that. J.I. Packer's Keep in Step with the Spirit is also another great book. John MacArthur's Our Sufficiency in Christ, another excellent book that talks a lot about some of these issues. Holiness by J.C. Ryle. We've talked about that. You Can Change by Tim Chester, a fairly new book, but I think it's, it, it deals with some issues of the heart that I really like. There's a fairly new book, maybe in the past seven or eight years, by a man named Chris Lungard called The Enemy Within. Obviously, a classic is Future Grace by John Piper. I mentioned In the Face of God by Michael Horton. But if there's one book I would encourage you to read, and you can get the updated version of these with um, J.I. Packer's introductory uh, comments. You can find these on Amazon. But it's The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. If there's one book that will help you to understand the reformed view of dealing with sin in your life, a book that has influenced me, a book that has helped me, a book that straightened me out, a book that I go back to, it's The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. And maybe you're listening to this podcast and you're struggling with sin and you have a struggle and you have an issue. Maybe you just need prayer or you need someone to talk to or you need some encouragement, some pastoral encouragement from a pastor. I encourage you to email me. You can email me at Sean, that is S-E-A-N, at E-B-C hyphen online dot org. Sean at EBC, that stands for initials for Emmanuel Baptist Church, Sean at EBC-online.org, or you can go to my website, SeanCole.net, and you can contact me there. You can find my Facebook page, my Twitter feed. Um, You can email me directly. I'd love to help you in this process of fighting sin. None of us has arrived. All of us struggle. All of us have have our secret lust in our hearts that we deal with, but the ultimate goal is to pursue holiness and to kill sin by the power of the Holy Spirit who works in us to will and to act according to God's good pleasure. I know this has been a long podcast, but I I think it's been helpful. We, We need to sometimes take time to dive into these deep issues and to look at what the Word says about this very important issue of killing sin. Thank you again for listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm Pastor Sean Cole. May God bless you and keep you and make His face to shine upon you.